This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. You're listening to a section of the LibriVox NaNoWriMo project, in which a number of LibriVox volunteers write and record a whole novel together, in serial form, during November 2006. The project is based on the idea started by the National Novel Writing Month. Chapter 30b. One version of the end of the novel, written and recorded by Michael Sirwa, michael.sirwa, S-I-R-O-I-S dot com. The lights flashed by overhead as the group sped along, eighty feet under the river, toward the order's outbuilding on the other side of the Hudson. Looking out the rear window, Trevor watched the tunnel fall back into darkness as they passed by. All along the sides of the tunnel he could see the massive pipes that supplied water, power, and fuel to the compound, as well as carrying away the compound's waste products. It was ingenious, really. Aside from trips for food, which were made in one of the order's unstylish SUVs, other necessaries were delivered or routed to their metalworks factory, located just north of Germantown, and piped under the Hudson to the compound. The metalworks factory had been a cover operation for the order since World War II, when it actually did manufacture sheet metal for B-15 bombers. Bought out by Charles once the war ended, he gradually replaced the workers with order personnel, continued a profitable business, making siding for houses, and put skilled teams to work building the tunnel and readying the island, which he had also bought, for habitation. It became the primary headquarters for the order during the Cold War, a time of heightened rivalry between the order and Global. It had served them well, and had been a perfect place for Tracy to administer treatments to Trevor, as well as a good spot to incarcerate Fulvia, although that didn't seem to be necessary any more. The team that would be going to Lampedusa was small. Aside from Tracy and Trevor, just two of the order's best agents, one of whom was a techie, plus Fulvia and Grayson would debark at the airport. Pierre and Theresia would slip from the plane once it had been hangered, just in case Top decided to try anything at the airport, and they would head south for the Isola de Conigli to see her beloved turtles. Trevor looked around the SUV, from face to face, examining them, trying to read the emotions most of them weren't showing. Despite the outward calm everybody was displaying, a palpable undercurrent of tension and nervousness still made its presence known. Great-grandmother Theresia was the only one who seemed to truly welcome the end of the journey ahead. Trevor had noticed, back at the compound, how she smiled at the mention of the cuneiform cylinder, and had urged them to meet Top on Lampedusa. Trevor still couldn't believe the changes he'd noticed in Fulvia since Tracy removed the chip from her head and in Tracy. Even before great-grandmother Theresia had revealed that Fulvia was their aunt, Tracy had seemed protective of her, a doctor-patient thing, perhaps, or maybe a sixth sense of connectedness. The chip had been inserted in Fulvia's sternocleidomastoid muscle, just below the point where it attaches to the mastoid process at the base of her skull. Once Tracy realized the chip was what was causing the intense pain Fulvia was feeling, she decided to remove it. The medical training she had received as part of her genetics training included a little surgery, and she felt she could handle it. If she was careful, she should be able to open the muscle and remove the chip, as long as she was sure to miss the occipital and the superior thyroid arteries, both of which ran along the muscle. 
a slip of the scalpel, and Fulvia could easily bleed to death in minutes. Fortunately, the compound was well equipped for surgeries, and after administering some mild anesthesia, Tracy was able to remove it successfully. Fulvia's neck would be sore, and her movement a little restricted for a week or so, but she wouldn't be bothered any more with whatever kind of impulse Global had been zapping her with. At any rate, she seemed much calmer now. Most of that tension and bravado that had made her seem so alluring had faded. She looked softer now, less exciting, but more interesting, more real. It was thanks to her that they were going to finally square off with Top and have a chance to put the plan into action. Using Trevor's hacking skills, they were able to get a signal through the global network for Top to call Fulvia. The message was that she had turned Trevor, that he now saw how futile it was to compete against this system that was currently wreaking havoc across the globe, and that he wanted to join forces. Top would be suspicious of the call, of course, certain that it could be a trap, but everyone hoped his ego would get the better of him. He was to call the number of a specially designed secure phone that the Order's electronics crew had been working on for nearly a decade. The original design was intended to be used as a scrambler for secure face-to-face -face conversations, preventing other agents from eavesdropping on you with remote microphones or bugs. As the design developed, they could see that it might have some other uses, and one in particular that intrigued Trevor. It involved transmitting data disguised as the received signal from a remote location. The phone call did come, and the order's techies didn't try to shunt the signal through too many channels. They allowed Global's system to track the signal, through a series of poorly disguised decoys, back to the compound. Fulvia was very convincing, letting Top believe that his massive data scramble had convinced Trevor that the world would be powerless against Global, and that he felt he couldn't compete against them. Top agreed to meet with them, and suggested either Malta or the island of Lampedusa. They agreed to call him back when they were underway. Teresia suggested that Lampedusa would be the safer of the two, for reasons she understood if no one else did, and so they agreed. When Top was speaking, his digital signal was mirrored, much in the same way that noise-canceling microphones and headphones operated. The duplicate signal, in effect, became invisible, an undetectable channel to send data in small packets back to the source of the original sound. If they could get the right data embedded somewhere in global system, it could be all they needed to turn the tables on top. The downside was that they would have to be at global's headquarters to carry out the rest of the plan, and that would probably mean certain death if they didn't succeed. At this point, Trevor really didn't care if he lived or died. He was still sorting out the real from the unreal, and the image he found hardest to purge from memory was that of Hazel dying in a hail of bullets. Hazel, even though she had been a figment of his imagination, had seemed so much like Rebecca that he had mentally brought back the dead, not realizing he had been trying to do that for the last twenty years anyway. He needed to trust what was true, but he wanted a different truth than the one his mind and everyone around him was telling him was real. He had been through so much that death would certainly be easier, but leading everyone else into the lion's den wasn't right either. He knew this had to be done, but actually accomplishing it would be another matter altogether. Before long they were in the air. The phone call to Top was made, and they told him they wanted to meet on Lampedusa. A time and location was agreed on, and Trevor and Fulvia were to come alone. Trevor was exhausted. 
He tried to concentrate on his codes, but couldn't keep his eyes open. He looked around the cabin. He had to finish restructuring the code before they landed. Who could he trust? His gaze fell on Grayson, two seats forward. He called to him. Grayson, could I have a word with you? Grayson got up and came back to him. Of course. What is it? I need to get some sleep. But I have to have this code ready before we land. And I also need some time to work with Malcolm, the tech guy. If I go to sleep, Tracy will want to let me sleep for the whole flight. Promise me you'll wake me up in two hours. Definitely. And Trevor? Yes. I'm glad you're on our side. Glad to be here. Thanks. Trevor closed the laptop and laid the seat back. As tired as he was, it was a struggle to let go and drift off. The weight of the past several weeks had taken its toll, but his body finally succumbed. Tracy watched Trevor fall asleep across the aisle from her, and was glad he was finally getting some rest. He would need it to get through the ordeal ahead, she was sure, but she was more concerned about his long-term health. For the gene therapy to work, he would have to take care of himself for the next several months, and he hadn't seemed inclined to do that lately. There was also no guarantee that the therapy would be permanent. She could do so much more with a sample of untainted misu flesh. Pre-disordered DNA from the same family. Just imagine. A shape appeared in the aisle. Fulvia sat down beside her, wanting to talk. Thank you for what you did back there, she said. You were in pain. And how are you feeling now? A little sore, but nothing serious. The physical pain is nothing. Sometimes it's the things that others do to you that hurt the worst. I can't believe that my father is top. It's so Luke Skywalker-ish. Tracy laughed, then quickly clapped her hand across her mouth. Sorry, I... No, it's all right. I, I meant it as a joke. It's Daddy, I mean Top, that I want to talk to you about. Tracy waited, not knowing how to respond. Fulvia continued, speaking about the man who, though he was middle-aged already when Fulvia was born, was very athletic and agile. She told Tracy about a time when she was young, on her thirteenth birthday. Topolis Masu had promised to be there for his daughter's birthday party. She didn't understand at the time that her father had two families, and hers was the secondary one. He did arrive at the appointed hour, but was acting strangely, a look of panic in his eyes. Fulvia watched her mother try to manage the situation, as her father said strange things. The clown was a spy. Aliens tried to paint his office green. The dog ate his foot. Her mother hustled Topolis from the room, but the party broke up soon after that, and Fulvia was the talk of the school and the receiver of odd stares for weeks afterward. A few days after the party, Fulvia's mother told her that her father was gone on a long business trip, but he would be back. He was gone often, so this didn't seem unusual to her, but she was worried about his strange behavior. He did return, several weeks later, long after the gossip had shifted from her father's behavior to the school counselor catching Benny Golson and Andrea Marcoli naked together in the girls' restroom, which was much juicier, removing the spotlight from Fulvia and her family. Her father seemed fine when he returned, happier than he had been in some time. Then he fell ill. He seemed to be very weak, and his skin turned a pale waxy color after a few days. He was rushed to the hospital and seemed to be getting worse. One day after school she asked her mother to take her to see him, 
and was told that he had been taken away to a far-away hospital, and they were going to perform a special operation to try to save him, and that she must be brave. Oddly, he returned after another few weeks, and seemed the picture of health. His color was back, and he seemed to be talking normally. In the evening, about once a week, he would lock himself in his study for hours, and she thought that was odd, but otherwise he seemed fine. She did notice one behavior in particular that changed, though. He loved to swim, and always started each morning with a swim in their pool, but had stopped doing that since his return this time. She wondered why, but couldn't see any reason for the change. She put it out of her mind and eventually stopped thinking about it, but began having a dream during those months that didn't stop until she was almost fourteen. In the dream she saw her father rising naked from his bed. He had a small black box in his hand, and a wire went from the box up over his shoulder. When he turned around she could see that the wire was plugged into the back of his neck, and his spine looked all lumpy. The dream disturbed her for some months, and for a while she was convinced that it wasn't a dream at all, that she actually had seen the box and the wires and the lump. "'And that's what I wanted to tell you,' she said, finishing her story. "'Your operation on me reminded me of it, and now I'm more convinced than ever that it wasn't a dream. I think I know what we need—what I need to do.' Trevor slept deeply, and would have remained that way long past time to land. Exactly two hours later, though, he was dreaming about a chorus line of chinchillas in four-inch stiletto heels. But they weren't dancing, they were kicking him. As he looked up at his attackers, he noticed they looked oddly like Fulvia, and their nipples hardened as they continued to kick him. One of them leaned over, grabbed his shoulder, and said, "'Time's up, man. Rise and shine.' Trevor opened his eyes to see Grayson standing over him, making sure he woke up. Top waited in his darkened office at Global's base on Lampedusa. He was bathed in the eerie glow of the three flat-panel monitors on his desk. On one monitor he was browsing through reports of the panic caused by his brief data scramble the day before. On another he scrolled through a series of emails, trying to piece together connections between various Global employees. The third monitor showed an image of a Worldcon jet landing. The meeting would be soon. He had hated to toss Fulvia aside that way, but it had been necessary. She was weak, and in the hands of the Order. It was quite a surprise to get the signal from Trevor that Fulvia wanted to talk. Either she was more resourceful than he thought, or they were attempting to perpetrate a massive double-cross on him. He would be ready either way. As he reached outward toward one of the monitors, intending to tilt it toward him a little, the tremors in his hands began again. It was time to restream the flow. He pulled a small black device from his desk drawer, untangled the cord dangling from one end of it, and found the plug on the end. It looked very much like the mini-plug on a set of headphones. Gripping it between thumb and forefinger, he reached his arm over his shoulder, and with an often-practiced movement, slipped the plug into the jack on the back of his neck, just at the joint between his C1 and C2 vertebrae. The hump of the implant was barely visible, and he took great care to never appear in public shirtless. This had been his routine since the late 1980s, when he had realized that the Masu curse had finally surfaced in him. He switched the device on, and felt a calming warmth spread into his spine and down through his extremities. Soon he would be fine for another few days, 
although the treatments had grown more frequent in recent years. The time on the plane hadn't been wasted. Trevor, with Malcolm's help, had been able to prepare the codes so they could be released at the proper time. He could do that, of course, any time he was inside the global network, and could even have done it remotely from New York. But they weren't here just to reverse the damage done by Top the day before. They were here for the cylinder. He still wasn't sure he could trust Fulvia, but Tracy seemed to think that Fulvia knew something about the cylinder that would work to their advantage, and she was willing to stick by her. They had discussed the details of their plan in a final twenty-minute huddle, before the plane landed at Lampedusa, and now it was up to them to execute it. A black Range Rover was waiting for them at the airport, and Fulvia, Trevor, and Tracy slid onto the back seat. Grayson drove, following the directions taped to the wheel. They were sure the vehicle was bugged, so they remained silent during the short trip across the tiny island, arriving at the gate to Global's compound within ten minutes. A guard looked inside the vehicle briefly, listened to someone on his earpiece, then waved them through. Security cameras followed them as they passed the guardhouse. Trevor could see their movement executing a slow arc along their path. Suddenly the radio turned on, and a voice came through the speakers. You and Fulvia were told to come alone, Mr. Ames. My sister Tracy and I are a team, and Grayson is a trusted friend. He'll stay in the vehicle, Trevor said emphatically. Yes, he will, Top replied, the mechanics of the radio unable to hide the amusement in his voice. Please leave any electronic devices you have with you in the Range Rover, and though I shouldn't need to say it, I've always wanted to, check your weapons at the door. We have no weapons, and we'll leave cell phones and the like with Grayson. Excellent. They pulled up to the main building, and Grayson parked in a particularly well-lit area as he was instructed. Two heavily armed guards came out to the Range Rover and escorted Tracy, Trevor, and Fulvia into the building. Just outside Top's office, they thoroughly frisked the three of them. One of the guards seemed to be taking an unusually long time checking Tracy over for weapons or signaling devices. Not finding anything unusual, they knocked on the door. Top told them to come in. Once inside, the guards positioned themselves inside the room, on either side of the door, just behind the three newcomers. They had planned carefully on the plane, certain there would be guards and other difficulties. Now, as they were face to face with the end game, a quote from Macbeth popped into Trevor's head. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. He couldn't agree more, but the situation would dictate the action. Well, Fulvia, Top said, I had given up on you, but it looks like you have done well this time. Trevor, did you honestly think I'd needed you to work for me? Haven't you seen what my chinchilla can do? Chinchilla, Trevor said, not expecting this at all. Yes, I named it after your techniques, which I have been generously borrowing from and improving on for years, thanks to employees I've planted at top research institutions that are using your AI code. We're way beyond anything you had done before you dropped out of sight. Our database is structured after your research on the human brain, but it's the linkages we've established with other major financial, medical, and political databases that makes it so powerful. We don't need you. Then why allow me to come here? Certainly not to work for me. I just don't want you digging into the chinchilla and messing it up. You've tried to do that several times over the past few days, and that's a no-no. 
"'We are going to have to make sure you don't play with your toys ever again. "'Neither you nor your sister will leave this compound alive.' "'Fulvia stepped forward, leaving a gap between Trevor and Tracy. "'Father, isn't there any way?' Top roared at her. "'Don't you try to talk me out of this girl. "'Are you with me or them?' "'She turned back to Tracy and Trevor for a moment and said, "'I'm sorry.' "'Turning to Top, head bowed, she said, "'Father, forgive me,' and silently added, "'For you know not what I am about to do.' "'Forgive you for what?' Top said, a moment of gentleness showing through his anger. Lifting her tear-stained eyes to Top, Fulvia held her arms out and went to him, starting to throw her arms around his neck. Her arms stopped at the sides of his head, though, and grasping him firmly, snapped his neck. The guards shifted as they heard the pop of his C-1 vertebrae snapping. Before his dead body even began the slump toward the floor, Tracy and Trevor each placed well-practiced backwards kicks, disabling the guards long enough to remove their weapons and tie them up. As in most real-world hand-to-hand combat, no lengthy battle sequence a la Jackie Chan was necessary. No shots were fired, it was all over in seconds, and the guards were gagged and trussed shortly thereafter. It was all up to Tracy now. Tracy moved to the limp body of Top. Fulvia, unable to stop the tears that were flowing quite freely now, helped her turn the body on its stomach. Knowing that they would not be able to bring any weapons inside, Tracy realized she would have to rely on whatever was available. A quick search of Top's desk revealed only a small letter opener, but the edge was fairly sharp and she knew it would be enough for now. She first used it to start a rip in the back of Top's shirt. Then tearing it open, Tracy examined the lump, about an inch and a half wide by four inches long. It bulged slightly against the skin like there was a small pipe or something underneath. She had to remind herself that this wasn't surgery she was about to perform, and she quickly created a slit along the length of the lump, from the plug at the top down to the base of it. She then made slits along the top and bottom, which allowed her to peel the covering skin and tissue back, revealing a plastic cylinder, which was mounted in place of top C2 through C6 vertebrae. His nerves and blood vessels were routed around the outer edge of the cylinder through plastic tubing. Inside the plastic cylinder Tracy could see the cuneiform cylinder, the top and bottom of which were attached to the nerves and blood vessels, with intricate electronica, too detailed to examine here. She finished quickly with the part she had been dreading, that of separating the cylinder from the spinal column, and they wrapped it in some tissue they found in the desk. Time to call in the troops. The simple ring Trevor had been wearing had only one purpose, to signal Grayson. The commandos, Teresia's turtles, had been waiting on the Isola de Conigli for Teresia's arrival, and had set off in their small landing boats in time to surround Global's compound. Teresia shouted after them as they set off, I love the sight of turtles in the moonlight. When Grayson received the signal from Trevor, he sent two signals himself. One alerted the commandos to attack, which began with well-placed mortar fire and a couple of targeted missile strikes in the far reaches of the compound, far away from Top's offices. The second released the worm into the global database. As soon as the first explosion hit, Trevor and Fulvia grabbed the guards' assault rifles and headed into the corridor, Tracy following close behind with a cylinder. As hoped, they received very little resistance, 
because most of the compound soldiers were running towards the sound of the action. The diversion allowed the commandos to move in quickly and form a cordon around the three of them as they made their way out to the Range Rover, which was apparently now a present from Global. The strike was over soon, since the main objective was to get Trevor, Tracy, and Fulvia out quickly and safely. They were ferried over to the Isola de Conigli, where they joined Teresia and Pierre, until they could board a waiting Worldcon seaplane, which took them up to Sicily, a short stop before the journey back to New York. Over the next few days, the world righted itself again. The scrambles stopped as the worm that Grayson released worked its way through Global's massive system, and markets and institutions began to restore their systems from their own backups. Global would, of course, restore the chinchilla to full operation, once they contained the digital cancer spreading through it, so the order's work wasn't done. There would be plenty to keep them occupied for years to come. For now, though, Trevor, Tracy, and Fulvia, new-found relatives, wanted to relax at the compound near Catskill, venturing out to Angela's Pancake House occasionally, talking and learning from Teresia, and just basking in the warmth of new friendships. End of Chapter 30b Recorded on December 1st, 2006, in Houston, Texas.